chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 15. As I say, uh, the outline hopefully should be able to give you some direction. We're looking at this, Judges chapter 7, uh, in two parts actually. So this is the first uh, sermon this morning, and then we'll complete it this evening, this chapter 7. Now, it's been exactly one year uh, since I left the public sector. Uh, and I have to say, people normally ask me, do you miss your job? And <laughs> my answer is yes. Actually, there are elements of my old job that I do miss, uh, as strange as that might sound. I uh, do miss uh, particularly the daily commute uh, on southeastern trains. No, that's not a job, really. Apart from the congestion in the morning, uh, sometimes when you made your plans, many of you know this, when you make your plans to go there and the trains don't turn up, there is a part of the morning commute I like, I like its structure, I like the fact that I can plan my reading. So I used to enjoy just being there, reading, and I never wanted to listen to music when I'm on the train. I enjoy just reading. I could get my Bible reading sometimes done if I'm in a rush, or I can definitely read a good book. So there is that part, actually, I do miss, and uh, I love the joy. I, I, I miss the joy of reading on the train, put it that way. But there is one thing I don't miss, actually, about my old job. Uh, uh, and it is a, it's a fact that I don't miss doing job interviews. Uh, I don't miss interviewing people, and I don't miss myself especially being interviewed. Uh, actually, when I was working, I, I struggled with job interviews. Uh, and I think it's probably true for most of you. I struggled with it because job interviews are all about promoting yourself. And it's difficult for a Christian because it is the opposite of what Jesus asks us to do as his followers. We would love to go into the interview and talk about God and promote him. But no, the job interview asks us to talk about ourselves, what we have achieved uh, in our own strength. And so it is difficult to do that. And uh, there is particularly one question in job interviews that I used to struggle with. And the question is, what are your greatest weaknesses? I know some of you have been asked that question in your job interview. They ask you, what are your greatest strengths? And they ask you, what are your greatest weaknesses? Now, I struggle to answer that question often because... There are so many weaknesses I have, so I'm thinking to myself, where should I start? But of course, you can't do that in a job interview. But the other reason I struggle with that is because the interviewer wants you to show humility while promoting yourself. So you can't say, my weakness is coming late to work. It's hard to turn that one around. It's your weakness. You can't, you can't serve that one. Uh, you can't serve it. You can't turn getting ready to work into something positive. So usually what I used to say is something along the lines of, my greatest weakness is that I like everything perfect, which means that I do, I do things very well, of course, uh, perfect, but I sometimes find it challenging. It's just sometimes uh, to always meet my deadlines because I want everything perfect. And by saying that, what I've done is I've successfully dressed up my weakness of being perfect as a strength. I'm telling my interviewer, if you want something done very well, come to me. But sometimes I won't always, you know, get it right. And uh, they like that. So a bit of humility, but overall, I'm saying I am a perfect performer. So hire me. I wonder, why do we feel the need to dress up our weaknesses like that. Why do we feel that need? 
Well, because we live in a society where we look down on our weaknesses. All of us are trying to project the best image of ourselves. We are trying to say we are strong and stable people. We live strong and stable lives. None of us want to show or share our weaknesses with other people. So sometimes what we do is we pretend we have no weaknesses. Or often we avoid doing things that expose our weaknesses. We only want to do things we are qualified to do. So that no one can see us that we are weak at doing that. All of us are like that. And that's why I like the book of Judges. It is such a welcome news to all of us. As you know, we are currently studying the book of Judges verse by verse. And we said Judges is an historical account of God's people, Israel, as they settled in the promised land of Canaan, having been delivered from their life of slavery in Egypt. But Judges is more than just history. Judges, I love it because it's an amazing story of how God uses weak people through their weakness to do impossible things. Judges is good news for weak people like me. It is, if you are weak here this morning in some area of your life, Judges is good news for you. Today we are continuing the story of Gideon in chapter 7, as I said. We are in Judges chapter 7, as Gideon raises a weak army, a weak army of 300 people to fight a very strong enemy of 135,000. And the question we are exploring, we're going to do this in two parts. So the first part, we look at verse 1 to 15 this morning. And the second part, the fight itself from verse 16 to verse 25. So I encourage you to make an effort to, to listen to all of it because you're only going to hear one half uh, this morning. And the question we're exploring this morning is how should we respond to weakness in our lives? Well, come with me on this uh, amazing historical adventure uh, 3,200 years ago and see how this passage answers the question. And the first thing we learn from this passage, which is in front of you in your outline, is that sometimes serving God looks impossible. Sometimes serving God looks impossible. Feels impossible. Now we have just seen in chapter 6, Gideon test God to see if God is with him. And we saw that God answered him. Now it's time for Gideon to get on with the job. Look at verse 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped outside the spring of Harod. What's happening here is that Gideon has now stationed his 32,000 men about five miles from where the enemies, the Midianites, are. They are at the spring of Harod. Look at how that verse continues. And the camp of Midian, their enemy, was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. So what this is telling us is that not only are they five miles from each other, it's a first of, so to speak, Gideon can look down. Israel can look down. Where they are, it's a bit elevated. And they are able to look down in the valley and see the Midianites, their enemy. And when they look down and see the Midianites five miles away in the valley, what do they see? They are looking at 135,000 well-armed soldiers. 
They are looking at countless camels. Because the Midianites have come with camels like the sands of a seashore. Uh, David read for us. And camels, we may not think a big thing, but camels at this time, they are the equivalent of a military tank. A camel is very scary to a person who's on foot. And this is the most modern weapon at the time that they are brought with them, the Midianites. And Israel, 32,000 soldiers and no camels. And their soldiers are actually volunteers. So as Israel looks down on the Midianite, what does it see? It sees only defeat, only death, and only destruction. And as you see later, the people are quaking in their boots. The task that is before Gideon looks impossible. It feels impossible. And you know what? All of us who belong to God have felt something similar. Sometimes serving God, living for God, looks impossible. As followers of Jesus, our mission statement is in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 25. What does it say? We read this last week. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is commanding you this morning to take up the cross and follow him. That looks and feels impossible. And taking up the cross means loving your husband for Jesus. Even though your husband may say lots of unkind words to you. But you know Jesus wants you to love your husband unconditionally. It looks impossible, doesn't it? It feels impossible. Taking up the cross means picking up the phone and calling your relative who hates you. But you know Jesus commands you to love your relatives who don't even want to say anything to you. So you persevere, you call your brother, you call your sister. You say hello to them for the sake of Christ. It feels and looks impossible. Taking up the cross means sharing Jesus with friends at school or university when it feels awkward, when it doesn't feel like a cool thing to do. It looks and feels impossible, doesn't it? Peer pressure. It's hard. Sometimes serving God looks impossible. That's the first truth we learned from this passage. And you're saying, so what's the good news? No, actually, it gets worse. It's because the second truth we learn from here is that, and God often makes serving him even harder. Sometimes serving God looks impossible. And God make, often makes serving him even harder. Look what happens here. Gideon is anxiously waiting for the battle to begin against the odds. And now the anxiety multiplies. Look at verse 2 to verse 3. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful 
and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Poor Gideon. Poor Gideon. Uh, it's the last thing he needs to hear. I mean, he's got 35,000 people, 32,000 people, and he's looking at what? 135,000. And the Lord is saying, you've got too many people. And you know, Gideon, as you know, he suffers from fear. And he's like, thinking, goodness me, what's going on here? What sort of thing have I got myself into? Uh, but to his credit, Gideon obeys. And uh, I think he obeys probably because he's thinking... Only a few people will be afraid, so we'll be all right. Let's, let's go with this. Only a few will be afraid. But then the numbers come in. The generals have counted, and the figures are in, perhaps like on election night. And he's there on tentacles. How many are fearful? And look at the number. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. What a body blow to Gideon. 70 people, 70% are quaking in their boots with fear, and they're all foam. Gideon is looking at the army and he's thinking, it's not as amazing as I thought perhaps it was. And you know, the people walking home, they're voting with their feet about Gideon's leadership. They're scared because they don't think Gideon has a real plan here. And they think, I need to go home. And the only surprise in this verse, what surprises you about this verse? What surprised me when I read it is that Gideon is not one of them. <laughs> Gideon, based on his record, should be among the 70%, but he's not. Uh, you know, Gideon is probably thinking, look, if the qualification to go home is fear, please sign me up. <laughs> I mean, I'm ready to go home. But Gideon doesn't. Because, of course, he has to remain. Because there's a people remaining there, the 10,000. So Israel is down to 10,000. God has made Israel weaker, and Gideon is probably pacing up and down. Goodness me, the old dear. What are we going to do? And just before he sits down, perhaps, God has not finished with his compulsory redundancy program. He announces there's more tests. Look at this book. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down the water, and I'll test them for you there. And any, of, any one of whom I'll say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I said to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So what will God do now? We are told in verse verse 5 to 6. So, he, so Gideon brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the, the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink Water. Now, reading this is a bit confusing, and people, different versions get across different things. And some of you, of course, would have let this in Sunday school, and you, uh, and you feel you have a good handle on the text. But essentially, it is this there are two groups. Okay? Group one is scooping, is probably scooping water while. Essentially, group one is scooping water with their hands and drinking it with tongue in hand. Okay? But they are standing up. 
That's very important. The crucial difference between those kneeling and those standing, that, so standing up. So that is group one. They go there, they scoop the water while standing and drinking all that. that you know, I, guess that, I guess that's how a dog loves. Uh, sort of with, hand, with tongue in hand. Group number two is kneeling to drink. And they're probably also dipping that and doing it like a dog. But the important thing is that they are kneeling down. And this is the majority. God tells Gideon to go with group one. And there are only 300 of them. They are drinking water by lifting it to the hand. The rest who are kneeling, whether they are going in like that, or they are, you know, like that, the important thing is that they are kneeling. God doesn't uh, send those people home. Now, here is a big surprise. So you learned in Sunday school that, of course, God gets rid of the 9,800, right? Uh, oh, let me do my match properly. Oh, because they are not as alert. That's what we learned. That's what I learned in Sunday school. No. There is no reason to think God has chosen the 300 to remain because they are more alert or better than the others. The reason God has got rid of the 9,700 is in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God, in His wisdom, has just decided of a very ingenious way of cutting down the number in a fair and impartial way where no one can argue, and He's precisely reduced it to 300. God wants Israel to realize that he can save them with the fewest numbers so that all the praises goes to God. What God is doing in this text is that he's making it very clear. Deliberately is making the fight impossible for them to do it in their own hands. He says, look, if I save you with 10,000, you're going to boast. So I want to do it with 300. Now God can save with 10,000. How do we know? Because Barak defeated Sisera with 10,000 men. But here he wants to make sure that, no, I want to do it in a way that you will not boast. You will be in absolute no doubt that it is me who has done it. You see, the trouble with all of us is that it's not that we lack self-confidence. The world tells you you need more self-confidence. That's not the problem. The problem with us is that we have, we, we, we have too much self-importance. We want to be praised. We want our name on the plaque of everything we do. I know some people who have come to me and said, oh, should I give anonymously or not? I said, give anonymously, but then, so no, I think I'll put my, I have to tell him that it's me who gave him. We all like that, and we shouldn't necessarily think that we are better. We, we all like to have our name attached to things we do. We want people to recognize that it is us who have done that. Preachers, everyone else is like that. This is our sinful nature. All of us seek, like to take God's credit and make it our own. And so what God has to do is to empty us out of our pride. As Thomas Kempe said, he who would learn to serve must first learn to think little of himself. Listen, God knows you boast in your exam results. So it makes it difficult for you to do those exams. 
So that when you look back over your life, you say, I just didn't know how I did that. But I know the Lord sustained me. God knows you boast in raising good kids. He will. He knows that. He knows that you not only boast in raising good kids, he knows that you look down on others who struggle raising good kids. So you know what God does? He gives you at least one shout. It's very difficult. Just to drive you on your knees so that you can pray. You can remember that it is God at work. It's amazing, isn't it? Friends, God knows that we'll boast in a good church. We'll boast that the Lord has built a good church. And what we'll do is we'll stop praying. So you know what God does? He doesn't just give you a pastor with many flaws and weaknesses. God also gives you difficult church members. People in the life of the church. So that you can love and support them. He wants to keep you prayerful. He wants you to look back on a person and say, did the pastor do that? Did the elder do that? No. God changed that man. That's what God does. Sometimes serving God looks impossible. And God often makes serving him harder. So that we can say with the psalmist, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name we give glory. So how does God use our weaknesses for his glory? How does he do it, actually? In what way does our weaknesses give God glory? Well, by dressing our weakness in his strength. And that's our third truth in your outline. God dresses our weakness in his strength. Now, we've seen here that Gideon has selected his 300 men. And as night falls... Gideon is probably lying his head on his sort of Ophrah pillow and uh, he's wondering what tomorrow brings. He has 300 men and he has to go tomorrow fight against 135,000. Now every night before a major event is very difficult. The day before you face a tough exam. The day before you face a hospital operation. Those are difficult nights, isn't it? You are thinking. Not the day before you get married. You, you, you want that to go quickly. It's difficult for different reasons. But you, you, when you've got a tough day ahead of you, it's hard to sleep. And perhaps Gideon is experiencing that. But Gideon actually, well, it's much more than that, we should say. Because for us, you know, facing a difficult day of interview, yeah. But Gideon tomorrow has to face an army, and he may die. It must feel like an eternity to him. But that wait is now over. Look at verse 9 to verse 11. God has fresh orders for Gideon. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp. For I have given it, past tense, into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant. Is God nice? And you shall hear, he knows us by name, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Amazing. God gives the Gideon two options. Okay? Option one, if you trust me, go and fight now. Don't miss that. That's in verse nine. 
Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hands. So option one, Gideon, if you trust me, go and fight now. But, if you don't still trust me, here is option two. Go and check out the Midianites with your servant, Pura. Then afterwards, you have enough strength to fight. Our God is so lovely, isn't he? He's so caring to Gideon. He could have just sent him in his week to say, go and fight now. But he's patient with him. He wants to build him up. He knows Gideon is at the end of the rope, so he lets Gideon decide. This is a big decision for Gideon. Does Gideon still trust God to fight now, or does he need more strength to go and fight? And here is our answer, how it finishes, verse 11. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Friends, Gideon still does not fully trust God. And that amazes us. Gideon has obeyed God so far in two places. He's reduced the army, and that is obedience. He could have refused. But when it comes to a difficult question, do you still trust me now to fight? Gideon shows he's still faltering. One minute he obeys God, another minute he's doing the opposite. Is it just me, or do you see something of Gideon in yourself in these verses? Because we are all like that. We say, the Lord is my shepherd, but does your wallet agree? We all like being one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. And what I love is that God... Even in our foolishness of living like that, he never abandons us. He's working to change us just like he's doing here to Gideon. And God says to Gideon, Gideon, go with Pura into the valley of death. And they go, look at that. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people in verse 12, the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Gideon is going there now to check out this camp and his heart must be pounding as he's walking there, seeing all of his armies there. But he presses on and he reaches the camp. Look at verse 13. When Gideon came, the older man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And verse 14 says, And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Can you picture Gideon at this point? He must be smiling as he hears this. He can't, you know, jump up in excitement, of course, because he's listening. Even Pura listening to what is being said. And what's amazing here is that the Midianites believe what Gideon has failed to believe. They believe God has given him victory. And this little barley cake in the dream that tumbles in the Midianite camp, what a great picture of Gideon's weakness. He is fragile and weak. But God reveals 
Here that he has dressed Gideon's weakness with his strength. Look at verse 14. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, who God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And when Gideon hears this message, he totally transforms him. Look at verse 15. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what does he do? He worshipped, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Oh, God loves using the Balibrites of this world to do marvelous things for him. He has dressed here Gideon in his strength. In our society, we look down on the weak. We look down on our weakness. But in the Bible, God uses the weakness of people to do the great work he wants them to do. And if you've been with us in Judges, you've seen this already. You've seen the second judge of Israel, Ayud. God using Ayud's disability to crush Eglon, king of Moab. Ayud would not have got close to the court of Eglon, king of Moab, if he was not disabled. And God used his disability to overthrow the king of Moab. We will meet later the sixth judge of Israel, Jephthah. What do you know about Jephthah? What we know about Jephthah is that he came from a broken home. In fact, his mother was a prostitute. And we see that God uses his difficult background as a gang member at that time to strengthen him and using that very thing to do damage to, to, to God's enemy and judge Israel through weakness. God delights to dress our weaknesses in his strength. And we see this ultimately in Jesus. At the very moment of when we were hopeless, when we were sinners, Jesus died for us. God became weak on the cross and died for your sin. Jesus is God crucified in weakness for you. Therefore, if you are in Jesus, all your human weaknesses are now dressed in God's strength. Maybe you are currently facing chronic pain or illness. Any physical weakness can make life feel very pointless. I know that. Even if when I feel a bit weak, a bit sick, I just feel like difficult. And if you have had chronic illness, it may make you very, just feel weak and feel like you're merely existing. But you see, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord, you must not despair. God has already dressed you in his divine strength in Jesus. So you can say with Paul, I delight in weaknesses. In hardship, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the gospel. God becoming weak for us. So if God is strong for us, how should we respond in our weakness? Well, we must follow Gideon's example. And this is our final observation this morning. We must press forward. In weakness. Press forward in weakness. And notice here how Gideon responds to God dressing him in his weakness. Look at verse 15 again. 
As soon as Gideon had the telling of the dream and his interpretation, what does he do? He worshipped. Friends, I want to remind you that Gideon worships while he's at the camp of Midian. Gideon worships God while he's in the midst of his weakness. He's already in the midst of weakness, pressing forward with the 300 men in face of improbable odds. Look at this, 15 finishes. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Gideon is pressing forward in weakness. And that is what each of us here this morning must do if we are trusting in Jesus. The question is not whether you are gifted or not. The question is, are you weak enough to serve God? Are you weak enough to serve him? Are you pressing forward in weakness? Many of us want to do things that we're only good at or capable of or things that we can fit in in our lives. Now, I just want to say, God does give people gifts so that they can do the work for him in many areas. But what I see in the Bible is not God sending people who are gifted for a task. I see God equipping people once they make themselves available to serve him in that area. We see Gideon being raised in weakness and God equipping him to do it. I want to say to you that if you interviewed Gideon for this job, you didn't give it to him at the beginning. Is Gideon qualified to be a judge of Israel? Not a chance. I mean, this is not Duke of Wellington or Robert the Bruce. If he attends your interview and you ask him what his greatest weakness is, you'll be there the whole day. I mean, you'll be there the whole day with Gideon. And we can say this, perhaps with the exception of Othaniel, with many of the judges. We can say the same thing with Ayud. We can say the same thing with the woman, Deborah. We can say the same thing even with Barak. We talked about Barak. Can't even fight without a woman leading in front. Many, many, many weaknesses. The point is, God uses the weak, the needy, and helpless people for his glory. And I want you to say, if you remember anything from this series in Judges, is this, God wants your weaknesses. God has work for you to do, and your weakness is key. So press forward today in weakness. Bring whatever weakness you have to God. A friend of mine said to me this past week, he said to me, I was trying to get him to serve on a committee for the association, and he said, Shola, look, I can't serve on that committee. I have no skills. I said to him, but you are honest. <laughs> I didn't tell him he has skills. I said, no, you're honest. You're honest. You don't. Let's, let's start from there. I was partly joking, of course, but he got my point. That his weakness is what God needs. Your weakness is God's requirement for maximum usefulness. So press forward in weakness. Maybe for you, your weakness is being single. You, you feel like you'd like to get married and you just single and you feel it's weakness. Well, what it means, this verse, is it means offering your single life to God and say, use my singleness to further your kingdom. Did you, do you know Mary Celeste? 
the great missionary went to Nigeria. Why did, she, why did Mary Celeste have such a tremendous impact on Nigeria? Because she had an impact because she was single. At that time, the tribes in Nigeria would not accept anyone who came there with, you know, a, a man. But she was a single woman. And they didn't think she was a threat. And she lived there in her singleness. And God used that to tremendous effect in Nigeria. Her legacy lives on. I know a divorced woman who used a new situation as a divorcee, a friend of ours. She, when her husband divorced her, she didn't sit there saying, oh, the world is ending. No. She said, okay, fine. I'm divorced now and I have to raise this daughter by myself. But I have spare rooms. So she now reaches out to exchange Chinese students from who come here. And she houses these young ladies. And through that, she's doing reverse mission, mystery. In her weakness, she has been made strong for the Lord. She is pressing forward in weakness. For some of us, pressing forward in weakness means recognizing that your old age is a gift from God. You are just getting started for the Lord. As I said, Daniel was 86 years old when he entered the lion's den. So old age will not stand up before the throne that day as you give an account for your life. In fact, God will look upon it as a gift. So offer yourself to God. Ask God what new opportunity can I use my old age to strengthen us. For some, it was simply saying every day I must pray for a member in the church because that's the only thing I can do. And you're a prayer warrior for God's people in that sense. For others, their old age has given them wisdom, strength, that they are preaching now is now I can speak. Because they can't just explain stories. They can't just explain biblical narratives. They can reflect on them about God himself has strengthened them now over many decades. You are just reaching your peak in your preaching. For some, old age means giving them tremendous resources to mentor young women in the fellowship. They've been through it. So now, they're not sitting back. They can use that. Whatever your weakness, let us remember that we stand tallest and strongest on our knees. So go to God and press forward in weakness. And as we close, a recap of what we have learned this morning. What have we learned? A serving God looks impossible. That's point number one. Point number two, and often, <laughs> no bad today, and often, God makes serving him matter. But the good news is that, and that's point three, God dresses human weakness in divine strength. So that brings us to point number four. Press forward in weakness. And this evening we'll see Gideon and the 300 men press forward and fight in weakness. How will it end and what does it mean for us in Jesus? Well, come this evening and let's learn together. Amen.